Good morning. A very warm welcome and a little bit of a wet welcome to friends, faculty, administrators, distinguished guests, brothers, sisters, parents, grandparents, and most of all, the great class of 2007. My name is P.G. Sittenfeld, and along with my Class Day co-chairs, Chris Cheney and Joe Franken, will be walking you through today's ceremony. We've got a great program for you, and it really should be a special occasion to toast the senior class and reflect on our past four years here at Princeton. Uh, one logistical item, hopefully the rain will uh, dissipate and continue to get less and less, but if you, are, if you do have an umbrella up, if you could put that down in the interest of everyone being able to see the action on stage. Uh, so in the meantime, sit back, get comfortable, go ahead and get a little nostalgic, and together we will celebrate 07. Hi, I'm Chris Cheney, and as excited we are to be here today, we would like to take a moment to pause and remember the three members of our class who are no longer with us. Alex Adams, Alan Ebersol, and Melissa Huang. Thank you very much. We'll be planting the greenery from this stage at a Remembrance Garden in their honor. Good morning, everyone. My name is Joe Franken, and I'm the third Class Day Chair. Today, I have the honor of introducing the 19th President of Princeton University, President Shirley Tillman. Good morning. I want to thank the officers of the senior class for the opportunity to participate in Class Day celebration. Today you celebrate the ties that bind you together as a class, united by virtue of the fact that you share the same last name, 07. Princeton has broadened your minds, or so your professors tell me, and it has also broadened your circle of friends. And these friendships will endure long after dean's dates, room draws, and the great food in the dining halls are a distant memory. As you saw at the P-Raid on Saturday, the ties that bind Princeton alumni to each other and their alma mater rung deep and long. What, you may ask, brings so many alumni back to Princeton year after year from the 700 members of the class of 2006 who celebrated their first reunion to Malcolm Warnick of the great class of 1925, 102 years old, who was the oldest alumnus at reunions, led the P-Raid. It surely isn't the accommodations, and it usually isn't the weather. Rather, it's the ties that they, and now you, formed in four extraordinary years as they huddled over petri dishes, argued with preceptors, 
competed on our playing fields, or miraculously brought a script or a score to life. When you unpacked your bags in the fall of 2003, you were a group of complete strangers drawn from 47 states and 40 countries. Today, you were the class of destiny. <laughs> I am thrilled to be sharing the stage today with the gifted actor Bradley Whitford. His presence inspires me to confess something that I have been keeping secret for six years now. I learned everything about running Nassau Hall from watching The West Wing. To give you just one example, I learned that no decision, no matter how important, should be made by a group of individuals sitting around a table. No, all decisions in NASA Hall are made by administrators walking very quickly through the halls <laughs> or in and out of each other's offices, small world coffee in hand. So for those of you who are unhappy with any of those decisions, as unlikely as that may be, <laughs> take it up with Brad later. It is now my pleasure to invite your new class president, Jennifer Michael, to accept the key to our campus. This key entitles each and every one of you to play an active and, from my perspective, critical role in the life of our university community. Specifically, this key will allow you to, one, visit our campus in person, online, or through the pages of the Princeton Alumni Weekly whenever the spirit moves you. Two, join a vibrant network of alumni association clubs and committees wherever you are living whether it's just up the turnpike in New York or thousands of miles away in Singapore. And three, enjoy round-the-clock access to Princeton's multi-billion dollar endowment. But you knew there was a but, only to make deposits. <laughs> now, I know this caveat may seem unfair, but I think you will discover that it is more than offset by the satisfaction to be found in supporting the students of tomorrow, just as previous classes have helped to make our campus the best old place of all for you. Use this key often, and my warmest wishes to you all. I'd now like to introduce someone who's worked tirelessly on behalf of the class for the past three years and has been a terrific leader, the 2007 President Jim Williamson. So uh, I have to admit, 
I was pretty nervous when I found out that I would have to stand up here and give this speech in front of all my classmates and your parents. Um, I was afraid that years of crafting HTML-based clip art emails that play music when you open them had dulled my ability to communicate by actually talking uh, instead of just clicking send. But I realized part of Princeton is conquering your fear and trying new things. So here I am. Uh, immediately after this, I'll be going skydiving, check out the inside of the TI tap room, and I'm finally going to try the dining hall's pan-Asian chicken. But um, Princeton isn't just about conquering our fears and finding new things. It's about the act of searching for them. In fact, it seems like our four years here could be best characterized as a series of increasingly complex searches. Now, they began simply enough on a day much like this as we dragged water-filled boots and moldy sleeping bags across flooded campsites, praying that as we tried to ford the Appalachian Trail, we wouldn't lose any of our oxen and no one in our party would get dysentery. <laughs> and so we returned to campus, only to find the searches got a little more complex. For example, we soon learned that we had to search for classes to fulfill our language requirement at the same time as we had to try and find TAs who could actually speak a language we understood. <laughs> and although some searches... <laughs> and although some searches would be in vain, it wouldn't really matter. For whether we found the goal or not, we would never regret looking. As time went on, we tried to find our place on this campus and people to share it with. And these searches have been formative. Some of us changed our habits, our passions, our opinions, our faiths, and even our fashion sense. <laughs> Many of these changes will stay with us for years to come. Yeah, there's not so much. <laughs> we replaced a freshman search for Red Bull and that one last paragraph of a Dean's Date paper with a new search for purpose and meaning. And now we wonder how those people who four years ago we never thought we could live with have become the people we now wonder how we can live without. So here we are. And we leave to encounter the visions we've dreamed, do good things, build the great works of a new generation. And there will be those among us who will dare to touch the stars and the human spirit. And if at any point we should ever think that we might fail, that we aren't brave enough or strong enough, we can always remember that we've had those doubts before and overcome them. Princeton searched for us some four years ago, and... I'd hazard a guess that every one of us, at at least some point, has wondered if they made the right choice, if we really could do it, if we really could succeed. But now, looking at the sum of our accomplishments and the staggering aggregate of our collective potential, Princeton can feel completely satisfied by what it has found. But the question remains, is our search over? Deep inside ourselves, have we found the purpose, the goal, the meaning? Have we uncovered what Dean Fred knew he saw when he stuffed our mailboxes with those oversized envelopes? Well, 
I would say most of us probably haven't yet. But I think that's okay. We're not supposed to have. That search is supposed to take a lot longer. It'll probably take the rest of our lives. And so today, we have one more chance to find all the things we need from this school. We need to say goodbye to our friends, distance ourselves from the Princeton reality, and perhaps most importantly, thank the people who helped get us here. Seriously. Right after class day, go up to your parents, call your favorite high school teacher, talk to your professors, and let them know how much they meant. Now, finding a way to express that might be one of the hardest things we have to do today. But, uh, I'm already covered. <laughs> and now, ladies and gentlemen, to recount the history of the great class of 2007, Matt Feinstein, Jesse Cronin, Jean Yin, and Jennifer Michael. The great class of 2007 arrived on campus in early September of 2003 as the last and best to be admitted by Dean Fred. Immediately upon arrival, most of us headed to outdoor action or to community action, where we quickly learned that misery loves company. With deer ticks on our legs, paint stains on our clothes, and unfortunately for some of us, a newfound appreciation for indoor plumbing, we moved into our dorms and dove into an activities-packed freshman week. Five days and nights later, we had nearly forgotten that we were actually going to be going to school here. Reality hit quickly, though, as writing seminars and real live schoolwork began to slowly take over our lives. Yet it wasn't as if our freshman fall was completely devoid of excitement and enjoyment. In October, George Clinton and the Parliament Funkadelic performed. This marked our first of many live concerts on campus. And it also was our first chance to see a half-naked grown man dance on stage in a diaper. <laughs> Thanks to the Jadwin Jungle, which, by the way, was reinvigorated by a few Class of 07 members, we all cheered on our NCAA-bound men's basketball team in matching t-shirts. At the beginning of second semester, while the rest of the campus was consumed with eating club bicker and sign-ins and everything related to that, over 600 members of our class decided to breach fire code and celebrate Mardi Gras in Wu Dining Hall. As spring wore on, many of us began finding wholly new ways to procrastinate. With the introduction of Facebook.com and Princeton's online Facebook, we were collectively consumed with endless opportunities for e-friending classmates and competing for their affection. Sure, your buddy might have beaten you in basketball, or he might have even begun dating your sister. But as long as 430 people had viewed your profile and only 400 had viewed his, all was right in the world. This, this might sound a little strange to those of you out there who haven't experienced online Facebooks. And you know what, I still think it's pretty strange but such was the way it was for us as freshmen. 
Our first year on campus was one of endings as well as beginnings. The disappearance of the tennis courts to accommodate Whitman College foreshadowed the disappearance of our A's. Yeah. It's true. <laughs> we clap because it's true. Um, mercifully, though, grade deflation did not go into effect into the fall, leaving us free to enjoy our summers blissfully ignorant of our quintile ranks. No longer the fresh-faced neophytes of campus, we returned to Princeton in the fall of 2004 and watched with glee as the new freshmen marched through Fitzrandolph Gate. The excitement and confusion of freshman year was soon replaced, however, with a uniquely sophomore stress. Suddenly we were faced with a myriad of questions. What major should we choose? What should we do about upper-class dining options? And where on earth had all our A's gone? To help take our minds off these daunting decisions, the class of 07 took our first trip to Six Flags, followed shortly by our sophomore formal at Colonial. As the fall wore on, national politics began to infiltrate our orange bubble. Politically active students headed to nearby battleground states to help on campaigns, while the somewhat less involved majority of us relaxed and enjoyed our fall break. The election produced very real results for Princeton, as professors like Michael Doran, Harvey Rosen, and Ben Bernanke were soon asked to serve in Washington. To take our minds off politics, 07 started its own tradition in the fall, with our first ever class-wide game of assassins. Further entertainment was provided by the Daily Show's Lewis Black in the fall, as well as by Ben Folds and Philo Math in the spring. Despite the anxiety of figuring out our majors and dining options, by the end of the year, we had signed our way into academic departments and shaving creamed our way through eating club initiations. As summer approached, some of us contemplated real-life internships, while most of us relished the chance to simply relax and rest up for junior year. Coming back junior fall, we proudly were upperclassmen for the first time. And then our new departments took the opportunity to test our pride with heaping piles of JP work. However, more enjoyable than the prospect of independent work was getting to know the Tulane students who were welcomed to Princeton in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. The football team had its own share of surprises for us. After a nail-biter against Harvard, the HYP bonfire narrowly slipped from our grasp following a last-minute tragic home loss to Yale. And since we were past the college halfway mark, some of us seriously started thinking of the future. And we were lucky to hear from members of our grandparent class, the class of 1957, about what the real world has in store in our successful event titled 2007 Meet 1957. Many of the friendships made that day continue, and we'd love to see 57 at our own 50th. Politics became relevant on campus again, as another Princeton alum made the national spotlight. In another nail-biter, Justice Alito ground his way through the Senate confirmation hearings. And our friends Bill Gates, Ellie Wiesel, Steve Martin, Condoleezza Rice, and Hillary Clinton came to speak, motivating us to ponder important issues. Junior year was the next to last year Princeton admissions practiced early decision but we know it still lives on in other ways. Seriously, 
How many of you sweated out your junior spring hoping for that coveted summer iBanking internship? <laughs> In whatever field we chose, or rather what field chose us, many of us began to get excited about trying out career-related jobs over the summer. Regardless of the seriousness of such jobs, however, we all finished the year looking forward to our last summer before the real world beckoned. Senior year, we had arrived. Finally, the top dogs, or rather tigers, on campus, we immediately asserted ourselves. Fortunately, we did not mark our territory like actual dogs. We did mark it with paint, though. <laughs> Busloads of Princeton students trekked up to Yale to support our football team and we're surprised to find that the stands had already been painted orange by some early rising Princeton fans. Our support was not in vain, as exciting wins at Harvard and Yale gave us our first bonfire in over a decade. <laughs> True to tradition, Cannon Green was lit aflame as all of Princeton gathered to watch the traditional Yale Bulldog and Harvard straw man thrown onto the blaze. Not to be outdone by general campus unity, 07 gathered together as a class throughout the year. We kicked off the fall with a cocktail party and comedy act in Rocky, gathered in Winberries for a few senior pub nights, and held a senior class wine tasting this spring in Gio. These provided us with much-needed breaks from the somewhat less social way we were spending more and more and more of our time, our theses. But finally free of thesis, Tama, and left with just our, just our less than exhausting schedule of two or three classes this spring, we found just a bit of free time to soak up all of Princeton that we have loved or not yet had a chance to experience. We can stop in Prospect Garden and actually smell the flowers these days. And we can lay out on Cannon Green without worrying about making it to class on time. We haven't taken all of this beauty for granted during our time here. But in the rush from class to acapella practice to lectures to the gym, it's sometimes all we can do to keep from slipping on the icy walkways. Yet. As jam-packed as our might have kept our schedules during our time here, we have all managed to absorb and contribute to the essence of what makes Princeton University the best old place of all. As we prepare to walk through Fitz Randolph Gate and into the rest of our lives, I know with certainty that it has been quite a journey for us all and an era that we will cherish during our subsequent journeys in life. Ultimately, Although today we go forward, packing up our dorm rooms with a kind of bittersweet triumph one final time, it is memories like these that will always keep us coming back to old Nassau. Although we, the great class of 2007, will soon mark the end of our time as undergraduates, we will keep this place in our hearts and reunions on our calendars for the rest of our lives. But we can never forget the one word that started it all. We can never forget the yes.
And so, to finish with a symmetry that we find quite appropriate, we would like to express our deep appreciation for the man who thought we all ought to be here, man who saw the Princetonian inside each of us, and make him an honorary class member. Ladies and gentlemen, Dean Fred Hargadon. Thank you. Your senior class officers thought it would be a good idea if I arrived unannounced in the middle of your party simply to, <laughs> simply to say goodbye. Uh, they know I hate saying goodbyes, but they twisted my arm, and so here uh, quickly is mine. I'm really glad to see that all of you are graduating. My, my credibility has been at stake for four years. Uh, I'm sure President Tillman considered the possibility that I might have pulled some trick with this last class and has had her fingers crossed all of the time. I was also sure I would get a bill eventually for any collateral damages you've caused. <laughs> And over the weekend, one student came up to me and said, well, Dean Fred, this is the end of an error. <laughs> and I winced. And then I realized that he was from Boston. And what he really said was that it was the end of an era. Okay, I've said my fair share of farewells to classes graduating from colleges over the years. But believe me when I tell you that this one really is special. It's special because you are the last class to whom I sent the yes letters. And realizing there was no way I could ever do better, I hung up my blue pen and um, called it quits. It's also special because some of the parents here today were among those it was my good fortune to admit in the earliest classes I admitted to college. And so it's special in that it makes me feel I've closed the circle with two generations of admits, Dean Fred admits, sitting in front of me. It's special, too, because you are also the one class whose contributions to your fellow students and to the university I actually had the time to observe closely over those four years. You probably saw me in lots of places you didn't expect to see me. Um, but quite honestly, my first thought was simply to stand up here and say, don't go. I can't understand why you would leave now. <laughs> Just as you've gotten the hang of the place, 
And it's, you know, as expensive as Princeton is, it's still cheaper than those apartments you're hunting for in New York City. <laughs> uh, I even toyed with the thought of rewriting the lyrics of Paul Simon's 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. <laughs> Except I realize many of you probably don't know who Paul Simon is. <laughs> your parents do, I think. Instead, I settled for letting you know just how lucky you've made me feel and how lucky Princeton University is that you chose to come here four years ago. It's been great to be able to cross paths with you and to have had an opportunity to be a fan of everything you've done. You are, as Professor Fleming said yesterday, the great class of 2007, the class of destiny. I'll leave you with just a couple of thoughts. First, if your parents keep asking you what your plans are for life after Princeton, don't hesitate to say, I don't know. Some of you know that I consider the second three sweetest words in the world to be, I don't know. Uh, and if they persist, your parents and your friends, just tell them, hey, when Dean Fred was my age, he was just starting college. <laughs> and I urge both you and your parents to take a long view of your lives. Life doesn't begin or end at 18. It doesn't begin or end at 22. In more ways than you can now imagine, it's just beginning. And finally, as you enter the post-Princeton world, all I can tell you is that it's still the case that as with life inside the university, so too with life outside the university. A, batteries are not included, and B, some assembly is required. <laughs> I wish each of you a life at least as interesting and happy as you've made mine. Take good care of yourself and others. Happy trails. Thank you for those words uh, to the truly one and only Dean Fred. If we really are the great class of 2007, I'm sure we'll all agree that it's because the Dean of Admissions uh, clearly had impeccable taste at the time he admitted us. Uh, I'd now like to introduce the Dean of Undergraduate Students, Kathleen Degnan, who will be highlighting the achievements of some of Princeton's most outstanding students. customary during class day festivities to acknowledge the winner of the Moses Taylor Pine Honor Prize awarded annually to that member of the senior class who has most clearly manifested scholarship, 
strength of character, and effective leadership in support of Princeton University. The Pine Prize, which is the highest honor that the university confers upon an undergraduate, was presented this year at Alumni Day to two students, Alicia Holland and Lester Mackey. Alicia and Lester, would you please stand so that we can acknowledge your accomplishments? prize this morning is the Alan Macy Dulles Class of 51 Service Award. An alumnus of the Class of 1951 generously endowed this award to honor his classmate, Alan Macy Dulles, who, seriously injured in the Korean War, set an example of selflessness and courage that are the spirit of this prize. The official description of the award is as follows presented each year to the senior whose activities while a Princeton student best represent or exemplify Princeton in the nation's service and in the service of all nations. The Alan Macy Dulles 51 Award is presented this year to Aita Amazi. Just look out at all those shining faces. <laughs> Ita, a psychology major who hails from Taiwan, has had a remarkable record of service at Princeton. She has worked tirelessly as a member of the Student Volunteers Council. As a member of its executive board, she has helped to refine and improve the internal functioning of the SVC by combining attention to detail and creativity. She has devoted countless hours to organizing break trips, most notably to the Gulf Coast in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. She publicized trips, selected participants, and designed training workshops. She has also organized volunteer projects in Trenton at Fisher Charter School and at the Trenton Area Soup Kitchen. She has coordinated music performances for the elderly and organized river cleanup projects. Whether leading a sustained dialogue group organizing a service break trip, or bringing volunteers together for reflection, Ita has left her mark both within the university and outside its gates. Ita has also served as a LAMP coordinator, been the editor of PRISM, and is the music director of the a cappella group Culturally Yours. Please join me in congratulating Ita Amazi. Frederick Douglass Service Award, established in 1969 by the Association of Black Collegians, is awarded annually to a senior who has exhibited courage, leadership, intellectual achievement, and a willingness to contribute unselfishly towards a deeper understanding of the experience of racial minorities, and who, in so doing, reflects the tradition of service embodied in a Princeton education. 
This year's winner of the Frederick Douglass Award is Danielle Hamilton. Danielle, a comparative literature concentrator from Rancho Cucamonga, California, leads by example. For the last three years, she has been actively involved in the Black Student Union Leadership and Mentoring Program. She has also served as Vice President of the BSU and in this capacity has organized numerous programs that supported political and cultural awareness across our campus. Danielle has left her mark on Princeton through her many service efforts, especially those aimed at improving opportunities for at-risk youth. She has been a tutor for Project Teach in Trenton, where she mentored pregnant teens and connected them with community resources. She served as a resident advisor for Leadership Enterprise for a Diverse America, counseling high-achieving high school students from low-income backgrounds. She ran tutoring sessions, college prep seminars, and designed community-building activities. Danielle was also a teaching assistant for two summers in the Princeton University Preparatory Program. In addition to teaching writing, math, and literature, she facilitated a variety of workshops and organized extracurricular activities for her students. She has also served as an Eating Concerns peer educator and a residential college peer advisor. Please join me in congratulating Danielle Hamilton. Willis Dodds Award is an annual award established in 1957 to be given to the senior who best embodies the high example set by Harold Willis Dodds during his tenure as 15th president of Princeton University, particularly in the qualities of clear thinking, moral courage, a patient and judicious regard for the opinions of others, and a thoroughgoing devotion to the welfare of the university and to the life of the mind. This year's winner of the Dodds Award are Laura Boyce and Joshua Williams. A Woodrow Wilson School major from Belmont, North Carolina, Laura Boyce is also a candidate for a certificate in the program in teacher preparation. Laura has been politically active at Princeton as a member of the College Democrats and P-Votes. She was an organizer last year of the Frist filibuster and is deeply committed to issues of social justice. As an LGBT peer educator and an active participant in sustained dialogue and a big sister to a fifth grade child, she has demonstrated her commitment to addressing bias and social inequality. She is particularly interested in educational policy reform. In addition, she has served as an outdoor action trip leader, has worked as an intramural supervisor for the last three years in the athletics department, and has been active in her religious group. One of her professors has described her as an exceptional young woman, utterly committed to being a leader in a civil society. Joshua Williams from Andover, Massachusetts is majoring in comparative literature. 
He is also a candidate for certificates in African studies and creative writing. Josh has served as a leader both of the Buddhist Students Group and the Religious Life Council. In addition, he has been the co-editor of the Intercollegiate Journal of Religious Life and has encouraged campus-wide discussions on the role of religion and ethics. In his role as an LGBT peer educator, Josh has demonstrated the capacity to manage sometimes difficult conversations with wisdom and respect. He is widely regarded as a person who stands by his own beliefs while thoughtfully and sensitively respecting those of others. Dean Rauschenbusch has said of Joshua, he cares deeply about other people and about their traditions. His interests are diverse, yet connected by his passion for meaningful and sustained communication. Josh has also been a writer, director, and actor in the Princeton Shakespeare Company and with Theater On Team, where he has served as general manager. Please join me in congratulating Laura Boyce and Joshua Williams as this year's winners. And now, the next two awards are voted by members of the senior class. The W. Sanderson Detweiler 1903 Prize is a silver bowl awarded annually to the senior who, in the judgment of the student's classmates, has done the most for the class. Founded in 1949 in memory of W. Sanderson Detweiler, class of 1902, by his sister, Mrs. Williams Jennings Price. This year, the winner of the De W. Sanderson Detweiler Prize is none other than Jim Williamson. Hailing from Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, Jim has majored in politics and is also a candidate for a certificate in Chinese language. He has left his mark on Princeton in a variety of ways, but most importantly, he has served as president of the great class of 2007 for the last three years. He has led a loyal corps of your class officers who have worked with him to promote class unity by planning and implementing an extraordinary number of class activities, including parties, speakers, formals, pub nights, and helped to coordinate all the other spectacular events you have enjoyed this past week and will continue to enjoy for the next 24 hours. Much of this is thankless work managing budgets, putting up posters, scheduling meetings, sending emails, but Jim has done it all, not only without complaint, but with enthusiasm. In addition, Jim has been a member of the Honor Committee for the last three years, and for the last two years has served as clerk and then chair. Jim has also served as an Orange Key tour guide, been a member of Wig Clio, and volunteered as a Let's Get Ready tutor. Thank you, Jim for all your hard work, your leadership, and all you have contributed to your class and to this university. It is only fitting that you have been elected to serve Princeton for the next four years as young alumni trustee. Congratulations. <laughs> and
Class of 1901 medal is awarded to the senior who, in the judgment of the students' classmates, has done the most for Princeton. Founded in 1920 by the Class of 1901, which in 1952 endowed it in perpetuity and stipulated that thereafter the medal be awarded in memory of its classmate, Walter E. Hope, who originated the prize. The winner this year of the 1901 medal is Alex Lenahan. Alex, a native of Piedmont, California, has majored in politics while at Princeton. During his four years here, he has made numerous contributions to this university. Most notably, they include his involvement with the undergraduate student government, first as a senator for your class. Alex also served as a delegate to the Ivy Council for two years and as a representative to the Council of the Princeton University community. But perhaps the role for which he is most well known is that of president of the undergraduate student government. During Alex's tenure, he worked diligently with university administrators to enhance the financial aid program for students wishing to join eating clubs and took an active role in the discussion about the evolution of campus club as a future social space. He advocated for other student life improvements, such as an earlier start to late meals at Frist, and a higher email storage quota, which I guess which I guess was sort of self-serving since I understand you sent really long emails to people. In addition to his work with student government, Alex also served as president of Amnesty International and as a member of the Princeton Model Congress, the Frist Advisory Board, and also served as a Maddie College undergraduate fellow. Congratulations, Alex, and thank you for all you have done for Princeton. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to now introduce one of the funniest students on campus. He's uh, been in Triangle since freshman year, and like John Fleming, was in Maxim Magazine. So everyone, give a round of applause for Mr. Scott Wallman. I just want to get this real quick. All right, everybody say class of destiny. Great. Talk about a nightmare for Facebook tagging. I have a speech too. But before I begin, I should inform you that in accordance with the policies of the administration, only one-third of this speech at a maximum will be funny. So, here we are. We did it. All of us. Me. You. This guy right here. We're graduating. And by most accounts, this is a good thing. This day, after all, is called Class Day, which makes it sound kind of like a holiday. Not a major holiday like Christmas or, um, Christmas. But maybe a Princeton is open, but the rest of the world is not kind of holiday. One of the Monday ones. The banks are closed, is what I'm trying to say. 
My point is that this certainly sounds like a reason for celebration, or, at the very least, ridiculous jackets. But now that we've endured the last awkward plea from a professor to deliver course evaluations to West College, while every student in the room silently prays for someone else to volunteer, I can't help but ponder the inevitable question, what's next? Seriously, I'm asking. I don't exactly have a um, job, so I'm definitely open to suggestions that don't involve me knowing the difference between a grande and a venti. Perhaps the source of this uncertainty that most of us are feeling right now is that up to this point, we have been extremely privileged to have role models like our parents, our teachers, and Zach Morris from Saved by the Bell. <laughs> but now that we're graduating, we're suddenly expected to be responsible adults? As Zach would say, whoa, time out. Now granted, our four years at this magnificent institution have greatly prepared us for the challenges ahead. Precepts have expanded our intellectual capacity. Extracurricular activities have promoted our sense of community involvement. And laundry upkeep has cultivated our appreciation for the inside-out rule. Am I right? <laughs> Nobody else? <laughs> Me either. But college is over now, and the real world is scary. Not that I know from experience, but I do watch a lot of television. And if the real world is anything like the show of the same name, I guess I have to buy a hot tub, get belligerently drunk, and live with someone who eats peanut butter directly from the jar. Compared to this, it's no wonder that everyone seems to make such a big deal about how college is the best four to six years of your life. They characterize the workforce as a post-apocalyptic wasteland, strewn with the neglected resumes of English majors who spend their sleepless nights wondering if employers will be impressed by a working knowledge of Middle English. My recurring fantasy is that I'll walk into the interview and the guy will say, Well, Mr. Wallman, your references are excellent, but what we're really looking for is someone who can recite the first 30 lines of Geoffrey Chaucer's general prologue. And I begin, Juan de Tabril, with its shower sota. And he says, I've heard enough, you're hired. And here's a million dollars. But there's no way that'll happen, because Professor Fleming won't be conducting my job interview. And also because, as it turns out, the real world is nothing like Princeton. Out there, nobody wears orange. Friday is actually a weekday. And Bradley Whitford never drops by to give you friendly advice. Although that would be a good idea for a sitcom. <gasps> what is this? <laughs> a pilot script for Bradley and Scott Wallman by Scott Wallman. <gasps> How did this get in my jacket? Oh, oh those two and their shenanigans. You want to read it now? Or, uh, you know, we'll do it later because uh, we'll have more time and I have to talk you through it, so. <laughs> yes, it's true that beginning tomorrow, 
Princeton will no longer be the protective North Face shell with zip-in fleece that shields us from the bone-chilling winds of actual adulthood. But this university has given us an even greater gift, the ability to leave here and know with the greatest confidence that we have more to be nostalgic about than any class ever. And without lying, too. I mean, usually it takes years of senile disillusionment to come up with stuff this good. But not for us, no. We'll be back next reunions and the reunions after that, wearing our ridiculous jackets of celebration. And after marching down Elm Drive, we'll explain to the younger classes as they gather around us in awe how, back in our day, campus was an eating club. And teachers gave out A's like candy corn on Halloween. And we had to battle locusts just to get to class. That's right, locusts, like the plague in the Bible. But our spirits, unlike our grades, never deflated. For ours was also a time of great triumph. Because back in our day, you could double swipe at Frist. And Dean Fred made sure the students were attractive. And we had a bonfire that cost more than most cars. Sure, the world beyond Fitz Randolph Gate is nothing like Princeton, and that's a little terrifying. But it's also a relief, because it means that our short time here will seem that much more special, that much more enduring. What's next? Who cares? Bring it on, real world. We're tougher than locusts. I'd now like to introduce Gary Walters, Princeton's Director of Athletics and a member of the Class of 1967. This past basketball season, Mr. Walters chaired the NCAA Selection Committee and, sorry Syracuse fans, made sure that there's no orange in the tournament. <laughs> Thank you, Chris, for that warm. <laughs> Could I have uh, the award winners please come forward? Thank you. Today we gather to celebrate the great class of 2007 and to honor the role the class of 2007 has played in preserving and advancing the great tradition that is Princeton athletics. Princeton teams won 38 Ivy League championships in your four years, easily more than any other school in the league. Princeton won the Ivy League's unofficial sports points championship each of your four years as well, running Princeton's active streak 
to 21 consecutive years. Of the 33 teams that compete in Ivy sports, no fewer than 22 won at least one Ivy League championship in your four years, and 28 of 33 finished first or second at least once. Of the 38 varsity teams at Princeton, 31 competed in the national championships for their sport. Two of those teams won national championships, women's open weight crew and women's squash this past year. And I think it is fair to say that the football team's performance, culminating in the Cannon Green bonfire, had the feeling of a national championship. Your class combined for 25 All-American selections and 83 All-Ivy League selections. Now I'll present the awards. These awards were also presented on Thursday night at the Princeton Varsity Club Senior Banquet so I'll try to be as terse as possible uh, with my commentary. The, the class, first, the Class of 1916 Cup is presented to the Senior Varsity Leonard winner with the highest academic standing at graduation. This year's winner is John Charlesworth, a molecular biology major who competed on our men's Ivy League championship cross-country and track teams. John Charlesworth. Our next award is the C. Otto von Kingbush Award, presented to those senior women of high scholastic rank who have demonstrated the ability in athletics and the qualities of true sports women. This year we have three winners. First is Elise Colgan. Elise, a Woodrow Wilson School major, led her women's water polo team in scoring for four seasons, making her the second all-time leading scorer in Princeton's history. She also has received academic honors from the Ivy League, the Collegiate Water Polos Association, and the American Water Polos Coaches Association. Elise Colgan. Our second winner of the Von Keenbush Award is Kathleen Miller. An art history major, Kathleen is a two-time All-American and four-time All-Ivy League lacrosse player. Kathleen is one of just five players in Princeton women's lacrosse history to score more than 200 career points. Kathleen Miller. And our last Von Keenbush winner is Claire Ryan Weston, an English major and an All-Ivy and All-American squash player and team captain Claire led her team to the 2007 Ivy League and National Championships. Claire is only the 11th Princeton women's squash player to earn four first-team All-Ivy League selections. Claire Ryan Winston. Our next award is the William Winston Roper Trophy that goes annually to the Princeton senior male of high scholastic rank who has demonstrated the qualities of sportsmanship and general proficiency in athletics. This year, we have two winners. Our first winner is Jeff Terrell. A religion major and football player, 
Jeff led the Princeton football team through a magical 2006 season that ended with an Ivy League title. In doing so, at quarterback, Jeff won the Bushnell Cup as the Ivy League Player of the Year, Jeff Terrell. Our second winner is Peter Trombino. A history major and All-American and All-Ivy lacrosse player, Peter is the only player in, Princeton, in Princeton's men's lacrosse history to have four seasons of at least 20 goals and at least 10 assists. As a freshman, he helped lead the team to the Final Four in 2004. Peter Trombino. The final honor is the Art Lane Award, named after one of Princeton's athletic icons, Art Lane, class of 1934, and winner of the Pine Prize, who captained the undefeated football team to the national championship. The award is given to honor selfless contribution to sport and society. This year, we have four winners. Our first winner is Dustin Kaler. Dustin is a Woodrow Wilson politics major and soccer player. Dustin has worked internationally in Switzerland, Argentina, and China, and used that experience while on campus to contribute to the Princeton chap chapter of Oxfam and the Global Issues Forum. Dustin was also a recipient of the, of the prestigious Spirit of Princeton Award in May. Dustin Kaler. Our next winner is Caitlin Reimers. A Woodrow Wilson School politics major and lacrosse player, Caitlin has helped make a difference in the lives of children in the Dominican Republic and Costa Rica and also the local community through the Trenton Bridge Program and the Princeton Community Center. Caitlin Reimers. Our next winner is Brig Walker. A molecular biology major and football player, Brig has instituted safety initiatives on campus concerning sexual violence and alcohol abuse that have earned him an appointment by President Tillman to serve on the Healthier Princeton Advisory Board. Brig was also a recipient of the prestigious Spirit of Princeton Award in May. Brig Walker. And our last winner, is Sandra Zay. A sociology member, uh, I'm sorry, a so sociology major and member of the women's swimming and diving team, Sandra's amazing community service efforts have spanned the globe, from New York and New Jersey to Botswana, Africa, focusing on public health issues such as asthma, AIDS, child abuse, and childhood obesity. Sandra herself was also a recipient of the prestigious Spirit of Princeton Award in May. Sandra. Brief mention should also be made of five members from your great class who won the Princeton Varsity Club Distinguished Athlete Service Award for their dedicated and diverse contributions to Princeton Athletics and the University. Will these people please stand in the audience? Those winners are Chris Cheney, B. 
behind me, Nikki, Nikki LaFell, Freddie Flaxman, Nathan Franks, and Luke Owings. Please stand to be recognized. In closing, I want to thank each of the senior athletes for choosing Princeton, for sharing your talents with us, for representing the university well, and for contributing meaningfully to the tapestry of the undergraduate experience. Go Tigers! I'd now like to introduce David Brown, coordinator of the Student Volunteers Council, and Marjorie Young, director of Community House. They will present the Priscilla Glickman Memorial Prize. Warmest greetings to the great class of 2007. You have astounded us in your capacity to commit yourselves to community service. Hundreds and hundreds of you have done weekly projects, tutoring in Princeton and Trenton, teaching SAT prep classes, playing music for the elderly, and preparing meals for guests and soup kitchens. You responded to the overwhelming disasters in Southeast Asia in the Gulf Coast by raising funds, collecting books, and going to the Gulf Coast to help in the cleanup and the reconstruction. Your civically engaged class has given countless hours of service both locally and abroad. We are in awe and we are grateful. Give yourselves a round of applause. The Priscilla Glickman 92 Memorial Prize <clears throat> goes to the senior who embodies the commitment to service that has been such a big part of the incredible class of 07. This year's award goes to Andrew Paul Frederick. Drew, would you come up <clears throat> Just stand nicely right here. From helping organize the Just University Seminar with Professor Stan Katz to working with the Pace Council for Civic Values, Drew has done much to raise the status of civic engagement on campus. From helping lead freshman CAers in Philly to helping coordinate dozens of life-changing matches of big brothers and sisters here in Princeton, including his own match with Isaiah, now at four years and counting, he has done even more outside our gates. Everything Drew has done, he has done with passion and commitment. Everyone he has met on the way, migrant farm workers, esteemed Princeton professors, patrons of soup kitchens, has been greeted with the same level of respect, humanity, and humor, which really is exactly what we should be doing no matter what we are doing. Congratulations, Drew. It's my pleasure to now introduce our second student speaker,
by consensus, one of the most creative individuals in our class, possibly our generation, one of Princeton's very own beautiful minds, ladies and gentlemen, Andy Hoover. My, uh, my mom wanted to make sure that I, I take out the gum before I start speaking, but uh, I have loans to start repaying really soon, so I'm just going to save it for later. <laughs> All right, let's see here. I'm short. <clears throat> Good morning. I came up here planning to talk to you about the future about our undying bond as Princeton students, about the difficult choices that await us going as we are into an uncertain world where our responsibilities will be great and our challenges even greater. But my computer crashed and the file uh, is lost, so instead I'm going to talk about monkeys. <laughs> Actually, though, I, I can't get to the monkeys first. First, I have to say a few words about diseases uh, and then a couple words about Sigourney Weaver, uh, and then we can get to the monkeys, so just bear with me on this. I have discovered, quite by accident, a uniquely Princetonian disease that I will call acute post-thesis malaise. There are, invariably, severe outbreaks among the Princeton senior class each and every April, Although all the infected complain of roughly the same basic problem, what to do with all their newfound freedom after finally finishing the crowning achievement of their Princeton careers, the specific symptoms vary hugely from case to case. Some patients, mostly female, spend all their days tanning themselves into bronzed oblivion on Alexander Beach. <laughs> Others, mostly male, play video games ceaselessly, stopping only to eat when something one of their characters does reminds them of food. <laughs> Some, emerging from the depths of Firestone like decidedly uncharming sun-starved vampires, seek food that isn't pre-processed -pro -pre and sleep that isn't stolen in desperate two-hour blocks. Every senior has a different experience, but it affects us all. My own experience with acute post-thesis malaise was a varied one, progressing in three stages, beginning the instant I turned in my typo-laden but mercifully complete thesis to the English office. Stage one involved me attempting to invent and consume various sorts of new and exciting alcoholic beverages. <laughs> the Armada, for example, which is equal parts Captain Morgan and Captain Crunch. or the grim necessity, which was anything left remaining on the shelf chased with anything else left remaining in the fridge. <laughs> so after that stage, and after I got out of Makosh, I progressed to stage two, regretting stage one. <laughs> but eventually I calmed down, sobered up, and came to my chance, uh, senses and progressed to stage three, which was watching the Discovery Channel. The Discovery Channel, in a word, is awesome. <laughs> its roster of programs suggests that it's helmed by some brilliant prepubescent boy, and as intelligent as any adult, but still mostly interested in dinosaurs, fast cars, and blowing things up. 
For example, there's Man versus Wild, where you can... Yeah. Hey, good. Oh, good. I'm glad people got that reference. I was concerned. Where you can learn both which types of jungle roots are safe to eat and which types of people are crazy enough to eat them. Also, there's Mythbusters, where you can watch... Where you can watch a couple of genial pyromaniacs set fire to anything under the flimsiest of scientific pretexts. But chief among all these series is the newest offering, Planet Earth. Woo! Go, Planet Earth. And I mean, it really, it really is kind of like the best thing we got right now, so. Narrated by the famed alien killer Sigourney Weaver, Planet Earth is a lengthy 11-part documentary concerning all the wonders of our planet. And that, my friends, is what brings me at long last to the monkeys. Star power here. All right. It, it might not surprise you to learn that monkeys have it pretty darn good. For one thing, they are the most intelligent species who do not feel compelled to wear clothes, excepting, perhaps, T.I. Bickeries. Monkeys eat what they want, they go where they want, they can throw their feces at each other, and no one, to give a really unfortunate pun, gives a crap. They can be either cute or menacing, depending on their ambitions, and they get to star in movies with Clint Eastwood, which is more than I can say for anyone here, except for Mr. Whitford. Thank you, IMDb, probably the last real research I will do in my entire life. Monkeys move in packs across the savanna or the jungles, they socialize with simian goodwill, and they boast quite a role model in Curious George, who taught me both to appreciate the wonder of my surroundings and to be creeped out by men in yellow suits. <laughs> Best of all, the monkeys don't have to worry about this real world I've been hearing so much about, with its tax brackets and student loans and Nancy Grace and geopolitically important nations with names ending in Stan. My father, who is under the mistaken impression that I have some skills beyond paper football and competitive pie eating, <laughs> has certainly been talking a lot about this real world. We're eating dinner on Nassau Street, and he brings up the fact that I don't seem to have a job yet. I tell him that I'd rather be a monkey, and he gives me that same look he gave me when I was seven and told him I had filled the car's gas tank with Diet Coke because it looked pretty much the same as gasoline. Why would you rather be a monkey, he asks me. They look like they have a fun life. I didn't pay this school $40,000 a year so that you could have a fun life, he tells me. And then, for the 50th time, he tries to explain to me what a mortgage is. But I'm not listening, and it's unlikely that I ever will. Hi, Dad. Thanks for coming. Um... I was not counting on sort of the front row reserved seatings when I took this. <laughs> I know it's impractical to be a monkey. The technology isn't there yet, for one thing. <laughs> and anyway, things being how they are, monkeys not, might not even be around two or three generations from now. That was depressing. Uh, 
But there's something to be said for their freedom, their tree-climbing looseness, the zeal with which they throw themselves into life, the way they amuse us with their antics while still retaining a savage majesty that is all their own. I know that I, like all of us, am about to enter the real world, and soon we will inevitably cast aside the last of our childish safety nets, moving into inevitable and long-delayed full adulthood. But as much as we'll soon be bogged down with concerns of money and status, with long-hour jobs and career crises, we can't afford to forget that in the end, we're really just primates. Primates capable of great world-shaping things, but primates nonetheless. So my only advice as you head out into the real world is this. As the Bloodhound Gang once exalted us in that long-ago raunchy song of our shared adolescence, you and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals. So let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. We could do worse, and there's always time to pay the mortgage. Thank you. We would also like to highlight the distinguished faculty who will be retiring this year. Their names are listed on the back of your programs. We also want to bring to your attention uh, the 12 winners of the Spirit of Princeton Award from the class of 2007. Those names are also listed on the back of your programs. The Spirit of Princeton Award recognizes a distinguished group of students who have made positive contributions to various facets of university life and I hope you'll join me now in giving them all a warm round of applause. We'd now like to induct the honorary members of the class of 2007. Each inductee will receive a nifty class jacket and a certificate. Two of the honorary members, Maitland Jones and Murray Payton, were unable to attend today's ceremony. Maitland Jones is a David B. Jones Professor of Chemistry and is most widely known for teaching what has been described as the most intense and grueling course at Princeton, organic chemistry. The very fact that students have decided to recognize an orgo professor shows his dedication, humor, and passion for teaching. Professor Jones adapted a, adopted a unique teaching approach in which undergraduates help under, other undergraduates. His philosophy is to have people think for themselves. As part of his retirement, his students made him walk the plank on the Woody Woo Fountain. <laughs> Professor Jones could not be here because he is doing research in Vietnam. Our second inductee, Murray Payton, is a member of our grandfather class of 1957. He received his honorary class membership at his class dinner during reunions. During our four years, Mr. Payton has worked tirelessly to strengthen and deepen the bond of our class, and the members of the class of, two, of 1957. From tailgates to career panel discussions, Mr. Payton was very enthusiastic to bridge between our class and his. We, he even wore our class jacket at the period. <laughs> I thought that'd be more impressive. Um, 
Our third inductee, Mr. Charlie Wilder, if you could please come to the stage. Charlie has worked in dining services for nearly 30 years and currently works in Maddie College Dining Hall. Charlie exemplifies the warmth and friendliness here at Princeton. Every morning as Rocky and Maddie students head to breakfast, Charlie welcomes them with a smile and enthusiastic good morning. Charlie even takes the time to learn every student's name. He makes this place feel like home. One student said of Charlie, seeing Charlie in the morning cheers you up for the rest of the day. Please give a round of applause for Mr. Charlie Wilder. Our next inductee is Mr. Bradley Whitford. Mr. Whitford majored in English and theater at Wesleyan University and later received a fine arts degree at the Juilliard School. He's appeared in several movies and TV series and is best, know, best known for his role on the show The West Wing as Deputy Chief of Staff Josh Lineman. In 2001, he received an Emmy for Best Supporting Actor in a Drama Series for that role. Mr. Whitford is also very involved in charity work. He and his wife, Jane Kazmarek, founded the Close Off Our Back Foundation which raises money for various children's charities by auctioning off celebrity attire. He is also a spokesman for the Heifer International Foundation, which is an anti-poverty campaign that provides farmers in developing nations with resources to make their farms more profitable and sustainable. He is also a proud father of three kids. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Bradley Wetford. Thank you. Uh, I just want to say it is so dry and comfortable in this tent. Um, on behalf of the acting president of the United States, I want to thank you for inviting me here today. It's a sad joke that I will be using in a nursing home to cruise women. Uh, <coughs> And that will be sad, because unlike you, I have a bright future behind me. Um, there's just there's one thing I have to clear up before I give this, this speech. Are, are there any members of the Princeton women's tennis team? There you are. Hey. Uh, oh, hi. Hi, it's good to see you. Um, are, are your parents here somewhere? Yeah, okay, good. Um, I was uh, I was leaving work at Warner Brothers, um, and uh, this this bevy of uh, tawny, young, attractive women rushed towards me, which doesn't happen as often as it used to. And um, one of them said that they were the Princeton women's tennis team, and it had just been announced that I was going to speak. 
and they just wanted to say hi. And uh, I asked them if they wanted, I had to leave, but if they wanted to watch some filming, and they said yes. So I go in to Matthew Perry, and I said, hey, Matt, I got the women's Princeton tennis team <laughs> outside. Do, do you mind if they watch you act? And he's like, uh, uh, yeah, sure, bring them in. I, you know, and then back to the mirror. Um, um, so he thought I was kidding. So I, I, I lead all these women uh, into the monitors to watch the, the glacial, soul-sucking process of filmmaking. And I had an appointment, and uh, I had to take off, so I left him there. So two weeks later, I get a bunch of T-shirts and this lovely thank-you note um, signed by the entire team. And I'm, I'm sitting in my trailer after this long day of shooting. I'm reading the note, and I'm just thinking, how, how sweet how civilized, how, how downright Princeton <laughs> of these girls not to forget the lost art of the thank you note. Um, and suddenly my trailer door bursts open and Matt comes in and he says, did you get them? Uh, and I said, the, the t-shirts? Yeah, isn't that sweet? And uh, he said, no, the phone numbers. <laughs> And, and I, I said, the phone numbers? And he said, yeah, yeah, they, they all gave me their phone numbers. <laughs> and I said, well, I, 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 didn't get, I didn't get the phone numbers. And he said, yeah, just look where they signed it. And I, I, I didn't get their phone numbers. I, I, I got um, their graduation years. Uh, so Matt points at me and laughs, uh, as only a younger single man can point and laugh at an older married man. Um, so I just wanted to tell that story, first of all, to embarrass the, the women's tennis team. Uh, I, I want to make sure the parents know that if your daughter is playing tennis at Princeton, Matthew Perry has her phone number. <laughs> Uh, and uh, to reinforce the fact that, uh, unlike you, I have a bright future behind me. Um, most of you know me from uh, my role on the West Wing uh, that uh, went off the air uh, a year ago. Uh, we started doing the show in 1999, and I had always hoped that we would do the show until the Republicans lost control of the White House. And now that that's actually happened, uh, I'm happy to pursue opportunities in the private sector. Um, it was uh, a fascinating time uh, to do a show about politics, not only because of uh, the trauma of 9-11, the rush to war with Iraq, uh, but because of the ever-expanding role, um, from my point of view, of show business in the political process that now makes the two indistinguishable. So as we head into uh, another presidential campaign, I thought it might be fun to share a few observations from the uh, political entertainment vortex. Uh, <laughs> first of all, uh, in presidential politics, there is nothing more important than being good on television.
Trust me on this. You can, uh, boy, am I going to say that? Uh, (laughs) You can ejaculate on an intern. I apologize to everybody. Uh, In one of the most sacred halls of democracy, you will be forgiven. You may even get a speaking engagement. Uh, uh, You can rush into a war based on false intelligence and you will be tolerated. Uh, The death penalty in politics is reserved for those who are bad on television. It is the one unforgivable sin. If you think of the vehemence that chased Howard Dean from the national stage after he had the temerity to scream over enthusiastically to a room full of supporters, unforgivable, bad on television, leave. Think of the scorn heaped on Al Gore after the 2000 debates. Once again, he was bad on television. Uh, Speaking of Al Gore, I'd like to drop some big names and uh, talk a little about my close personal relationships with Al Gore and Bill Clinton. Um, I met them both briefly uh, in uh, 2000, and Clinton, he touched me. He needed my shoulder, he bit his, bit his lip, told me what I do, what was doing was good. Uh, and he made me feel as if he had all the time in the world for me. And, and this was just a few hours before his final State of the Union address, which he had not finished yet. <laughs> but he had time for me because I was special to him. <laughs> now, as an actor, Bill Clinton is a fascinating uh, character. We've all met the smartest person in any room they've ever been in. Uh, I'm sure I could throw a stick from here and hit a couple of those right now. Uh, (laughs) The difference with Bill Clinton is that rarely is that person also a a down-home, white trash, son of an alcoholic with a pathological need to seduce everything in sight, including, (laughs) including Newt Gingrich. Now, I don't judge anybody's marriage, but uh, let's just say that with Clinton, there's, there's something emotionally unresolved about him. <laughs> this makes him a spectacular politician. The camera sees the truth about him. He needs us. He wants us. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And he needs us all to use him so that we can all get along. Every moment is infused with this relentless, almost geological need to connect. On the other hand, you have the Al Gore of 2000. The thing that was so infuriating to, uh, uh, about Clinton was that he was so darn politically savvy. He was slick willy. Even those who supported him Uh, hated his pathetic need to form coalitions and win elections and stuff like that. 
So, so Gore comes along, you basically have Bill Clinton's popular political point of view without any of the embarrassing, tawdry, ethical lapses. What could be better? Well, when I met Al Gore, he was distracted, he was sweating profusely, and I got the distinct sense that meeting a television actor was not the highlight of his day, <laughs> which is an appropriate response to meeting me unless you are a member of the Princeton women's tennis team. Uh, Al Gore is, of course, happily married. He sleeps with his wife, by all accounts. I think uh, he's a a great father. Let's say he's emotionally resolved. He doesn't need anybody in any uh, sort of wounded, inappropriate way. So where does that get, where does that get Al? It gets him a gig teaching journalism at Columbia. And until show business came to the rescue, it got him a slideshow and a seat in coach. Why? Because he was bad on TV. He had had the gall to express frustration while trying to debate complicated issues with George Bush. Uh, The fact that he was, and I believe still is, more qualified was beside the point. In the human dog show of a contemporary presidential campaign, if your only qualification is that you are the most qualified, you're out of luck. (laughs) He was bad on TV. Sorry, Al. Death penalty. Time to go make fun of yourself on comedy shows. Show us you can be better on camera, and maybe we'll give you another look. An Oscar would be fantastic. (laughs) Let's say your incompetence results in hundreds of deaths after Katrina. You go on, you do what Michael Brown did. You'd go on a bunch of comedy shows. You show everybody that you have a sense of humor about yourself. Not such a bad guy. He was good on television. I spend my life trying not to be bad on television. No disrespect to me or my brothers and sisters in the Screen Actors Guild, but I would hope that the leaders of the world would be held to a higher standard than a television actor. The coverage of political campaigns is designed to weed out those who insult us not with their bad ideas, but with their poor performance skills. It has all the depth of a sporting event and all the objectivity of a theater review. Now, maybe I'm naive, but I thought the job of the press was to look beneath presentation, beneath the horse race, and analyze the substance of a candidate's intentions based on, I don't know, research, facts. A candidate's style was up to us. No longer. In the age of television, viability and style are substance. The first question asked after a presidential debate and the last question we assume an undecided voter is asking themselves as they enter a voting booth is whether or not a candidate seems presidential. Well, apparently I seem like I used to work in the White House. I spent seven years standing next to Martin Sheen, who by all accounts seems presidential. I love Martin Sheen, but I have news for you. 
He would be a terrible president. <laughs> because, of course, he only seems presidential. And the relationship between seeming presidential and actually being qualified to lead the free world is casual. And what does seeming presidential mean? This idea has changed dramatically since John Kennedy ruined it for everybody with his perfect head of hair and his articulate, effortless charm. Judging from the last two elections, the character description has morphed into a kind of a, a fit, down-home, suburban white guy who looks good with, at, at a barbecue and likes to pretend he is a day laborer when there are cameras around. Is this a conservative school? Um, being in shape, being in shape is key. You can quibble with our president's policies or whether or not the world is more than 6,000 years old, but you have to admit, <laughs> you have to admit the president is in spectacular physical condition. What a heart rate. Now, I mock the president, but it's, it's, it, this is not a partisan aesthetic. If Al Gore decides to run, his first stop won't be New Hampshire. It will be a treadmill. He will start training like an action star, and it won't be for his health. Because in the age of television, if I don't like the way you look, sir, I don't want to hear a word you say. <laughs> Al's getting worried. <laughs> uh, sorry, Mr. Taft. Sorry, Mr. Lincoln. Television has inverted our aspirations in many ways. My parents yearned to act like grown-ups when they were young. Uh, if you saw me <laughs> drunkenly dancing at Joe's party last night, as I approach... <laughs> As I approach middle age, I continue to dress like a seventh grader. <laughs> In previous generations, there was a naive yearning to be led by the wise and the educated. Through television, we've developed the naive yearning to be led by raw, instinctive character, unsullied by the big books and the fine print. Exceptional intelligence is something to be hidden or shucked over for fear our leaders will feel distant from us as we invite them into our living rooms and gaze at them from our couches. As election season approaches, get ready for the inevitable pot shots at Hollywood for poisoning our culture with its decadent values. Don't get me wrong, I hate raising my children at a time where I feel like I have to play cultural defense in a losing battle over their inevitable and premature loss of innocence. You guys are allowed to lose your innocence now. <laughs> um, but why do we look to Hollywood to edify our children? There is one value, there is one religion there on television, and it is more insidious and it is more damaging to our culture than all the sex and violence on HBO and Showtime combined. And that religion is consumerism. Our national religion cheering for consumerism. Our national religion is not Christianity. The source of our values is not Christianity, Judaism, Islam, or any other religion. 
For all its wonderful virtues and its horrible faults, the religion that dictates our values six and a half out of every seven days is capitalism. Now, perhaps we can all agree that the President of the United States should have a first-rate intelligence. And perhaps we can all agree that F. Scott Fitzgerald was correct when he said the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. Why is such an astute definition of a great mind every campaign manager's worst nightmare? And why is it impossible to believe that while capitalism has freed more people from poverty than any force in history, it is also capable of enslaving people, including children, in a cycle of injustice and, and oppression? As the next senator from Minnesota and Princeton dad, Al Franken, said when he announced his candidacy, how are you supposed to pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you don't have any boots? I believe... This is the partisan part of the speech. Uh, I believe that the uh, part of the political brilliance of the Republican Party beginning when I was in college in the 80s was that it merged the idea of liberty with the notion of unfettered capitalism until the two were indistinguishable. Liberty no longer meant freedom. It meant only basking in the glorious values of the free market. It ignored the fact that people can be oppressed economically, and it made character it made poverty a character flaw. Any attempt by government to protect its people from economic injustice is an attack on liberty. As Ronald Reagan said, government isn't the solution, it's the problem. Not bad government, government. You gotta wonder why you ever wanted the job. The greatest disseminator of capitalist values is the television. It's at the center of our homes. In two generations, it has replaced the hearth as the family gathering place. It's comforting to sit in its soothing, distracting glow night after night, but it has one purpose, one motivation, as we used to say over in the theater department at Wesleyan, and that is to make money. Imposing Hollywood's imagined decadent values on the world is not the problem with Hollywood. The problem is that Hollywood is full of such wonderful capitalists. Hollywood is not decadent. It is morally neutral. If movies about the fact that 30,000 children die every day because of poverty made money, believe me, that's all you would see. The hypocrisy in Hollywood is the self-congratulatory orgy that accompanies the release of an occasional high-minded film, ignoring the fact that it, for every Schindler's List, there are 100 movies that treat killing people as entertainment. By the way, does it, does it scare anyone that the, the tipping point on the global warming debate was a movie? <laughs> why, why did it take a movie? The answer lies in a fact that every hack television writer and every bungalow in Hollywood knows deep in their audience ass-kissing bones. If you want people to pay attention, you have to tell a story, and you have to have a hero. And as Karl Rove would tell you, if he had an honest bone in his gay-baiting carcass. <laughs> you have to have a villain. By the way, and this was another thing I debated saying, but since you encouraged me, and I apologize to the parents, but where I'm from in Wisconsin, 
there, there's a name for, uh, for straight people who are afraid of gay, for straight guys who are afraid of, of gay men. They're, they're called pussies. <laughs> Sorry. I hope I haven't gone too far. Um, the fact that Al Gore in his story had his facts straight on global warming while I, it seems the administration manipulated pre-war intelligence is beside the point. In our culture, in a culture that conducts its civil discourse through the media, a successful narrative doesn't need to be true. It just needs to be a good story. The problem only occurs when a false story crashes into the facts. And unfortunately in politics, by the time that happens, it's usually too late. If you don't believe me, look at the newspaper today. Let's hope that Al Gore and every scientist who's ever done a peer-reviewed study on global warming are as misinformed about that situation as we were about weapons of mass destruction. Unfortunately for my children, I doubt it. So I ask you all, despite your kind invitation to have a guy who wears makeup for a living speak to you on this happy day, beware of show business when it comes to the deadly serious work of making decisions that will dictate your children's future. Stories are powerful. It's why we dream. It's why we have religion. The world we see through stories. We need them right down to our reptilian brain stems. They have the power to humanize us and to inspire us. But stories can be manipulated. They can sweep us away. They can turn us into cattle, no longer able to question the assumptions upon which they're based. It's called the willing suspension of disbelief in the theater department. It's a fun thing to do in a dark theater, and it bought me a great big house in Pasadena. <laughs> but it is a dangerous thing to do when the fate of an accelerating, shrinking planet is at stake. My favorite quote about acting is, is this. <laughs> acting is honesty. Once you learn how to fake that, you got it. <laughs> I'll never forget what for me was a watershed moment in the media. In the early 90s, we were invading Somalia, which involved the landing of Marines on a beach. It was clear that we were not going to be greeted with any resistance. It was so clear that the morning news shows had set up desks for the hosts on the beach that the Marines were invading, lights and all. And sure enough, the amphibious vehicles appeared. They discharged the Marines. And as they splashed through the water, crouching with their rifles ready to fire, a cameraman and a boom operator rushed down to meet them. And that's when it happened. Instinctively, a Marine pretended that the camera wasn't there. They looked right past it as if it wasn't there. Pretending cameras are not there is what I do for a living. The soldier instinctively stepped into my domain with a loaded gun in his hands, and he was doing what actors do to entertain people and what, unfortunately, our leaders do to keep themselves in power and to dictate our future. He was sincerely pretending to tell the truth. He was faking honesty. It was perfect acting. Television is not a medium for thoughtfulness, intellectual dexterity, or for context. It's a medium best suited to personality, story, and action. Charisma will always blur content. That's why the awkward anchors get dumped. Global warming may be a great threat, but what the, kind, what the hell kind of theme music are we supposed to put over pictures of ice melting? 
It will always be more thrilling to watch a target destroyed than to see a child's mind opened. So our missiles will always be shinier than our schools. The media is such a fundamental assumption of our civic discourse and how we connect as a society. We're in constant danger of ignoring its implications, especially when it comes to choosing our leaders and to confronting the most urgent issues, whether it's terrorism or our own destruction of the environment. Take it from someone who seems like they used to work in the White House. We need to do better. If this country is to succeed, if it is to inspire and to lead, you will all have to get up out of your seats, turn on the lights, and help write the story. It has always been up to the people of this country to hold its, to its spectacular promise. What is the promise? Is it accumulation for the few? Is it opportunity for all? Is it a future of fear and torture, restricted freedoms? Or is it a future of hope and the ultimate freedom, freedom from fear itself? If you choose not to take part in the urgent discussion about the future of the, your country, you no longer live in a democracy. You've sentenced yourself to a civic gulag, dictated by the whims of those who choose to participate. You don't just get democracy. You have to make it every day. So even if the women's tennis team, I'm being heckled by a squirrel. That's, that's never happened. There's so much orange out there, I feel like I'm addressing an overeducated hunting cult. Uh, let me get back to my witty wrap-up here. Uh, so if the women's tennis team is right and my bright future is indeed behind me, there's no question that yours is ahead of you. It is a future that you will share with everyone and everything on this fractured little ball spinning in infinity. We need you. We need your bright Princeton minds to illuminate it. We need your optimistic young hearts to infuse it with hope. And we need your active participation to make it happen. Congratulations, Godspeed, and write if you get work. <laughs> Thank you so much for those words, uh, Mr. Whitford. That brings us to the end of our ceremony. Thanks so much to all of you for coming out, for bringing the nice weather with you. A few quick uh, logistical items. Uh, as everyone uh, leaves the Cannon Green area, you can make your way to Dillon Gymnasium where seniors can pick up box lunches for themselves and their families, as well as get wristbands for tonight's prom, which should be awesome. And look forward to seeing everyone out there. Enormous congratulations to all the seniors and your families. One more round of applause for ourselves. Congratulations, everybody. And I'd now like to invite uh, members from several of the a cappella groups to close our class day ceremony by having everyone rise and join in Old Nassau.
rejoice in praise of old Nassau. In praise of old Nassau, we sing hurrah, hurrah, hurrah. 